0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences Podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky Wilson.
1: And I am Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show we are talking about baptism, infant and otherwise. So I thought we would start by actually trying to remember our baptisms, which is a common exhortation to Lutherans, with the ironic twist that a great deal of us cannot actually remember our baptisms literally at all, because they happened when we were much too small to retain memories. That was the case for me. I was, I think, 33 days old. Um, Dad, you you and Mom had me baptized on July 4th, 1976, which may seem like (laughs) an egregious act of patriotism intruding upon a very holy event, but as I understand, it was merely because of it being the bicentennial there was a long holiday, and the uh, the East Coast family could make the long trek by car out to St. Louis for the event
1: so also the Chicago side of the family, so it was quite a quite a festive gathering.
0: Yes, I remember all my life hearing about my baptism, not so much primarily in spiritual terms as the epic party that surrounded it.
1: <laughs> That's true. And by the way, we should mention that the preacher at your, the service in which you were baptized was Jaroslav Vaida, the sainted Jaroslav Vaida, the great hymn writer uh, of the Slovak Lutheran tradition. Yeah.
0: Yeah, now the silence is one of his best known and best loved hymns. That is a great one. Yes, and the but the person, the pastor who did my actual baptism was my grandfather, your father, uh, Bill Henlicki. Right, which has always been special to me. Also because my birthday fell the day after his, so we always had a kind of little bond there as well. Um, So you remember my baptism, though I don't remember my baptism. But a baptism that I do remember is my son Zeke's baptism, which in fact was done. By you. <laughs> so Zeke also was baptized by his pastor grandfather. And not only that, he was born the day after your birthday. So we have another little uh, grandparent grandchild's baptism birthday bond going on there.
1: Serendipity, yes. And we should mention, by the way, that you wanted him baptized in living water. So all these Lutherans trekked out of the country church down to the creek. And we waded into the creek and dipped him right into the living waters for baptism for his baptism
0: it was pretty amazing. I mean, I strongly believe it doesn't make the slightest difference what kind of water or how much water you use, but there is something much more like being being drowned with Christ when your little baby is going into an actual flowing and cold river. <laughs> that uh, that was a really powerful moment, yeah. I remember you also told me that before we did that, you wanted to inquire with the congregation whether it was okay to do this because in the part of the country you're living in, um, they said that it was only um, grown up, pentecostals who got baptized in the river not baby lutherans and would the lutheran congregation take offense at this but in fact they seemed pretty excited to uh to get in on the action there
1: yeah we had quite a turnout that sunday it was very nice it
0: was a beautiful day it was really beautiful
1: you know that what that shows you is that it's not when you think of baptism as entrance or member uh, the beginning of membership in the church it's public and communal nature is such that you don't have to personally remember your own baptism as an event, because as a member of the community, you witness baptisms again and again and again. And every time you witness a baptism, that's how you remember your own baptism, that I too have been joined into this community of Christ.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful and very true. And there there is a kind of renewal of baptismal vows that takes place whenever you you see someone else getting baptized. Were you so were you as you were growing up was your baptism remembered to you? Did people talk about it? Was there an emphasis on this piety of remember, if not remember your baptism, remember the fact that you have been baptized?
1: Uh I can honestly I honestly have to answer that uh kind of negatively. My early years growing up were pre-liturgical renewal days. And why do we baptize infants? Well, because we don't want them to go to hell. And if you don't <laughs> baptize them, you're jeopardizing their eternal salvation.
0: It was really that, that simple and straightforward, huh?
1: It was the, That was the rationale, which of course became increasingly implausible as the years went by. Uh, though I'm sure there are still some extremely conservative Catholics and Lutherans who would hold to that view.
0: As the primary concern.
1: Right, but that that it is the inauguration of new life in Christ and entrance into his living community. This was the fruit of the liturgical renewal movement and its reinterpretation, renewed interpretation of the understanding of baptism. So I was not, you know, remembering my baptism was not a theme of my youth, no.
0: Hmm. So how did it, um, was it through primarily encounter with liturgical renewal that it became more important for you? Or was it reading Luther or some other means that kind of brought it? Because I know it, it it seems to me it was always a theme of your preaching when I was growing up and a big emphasis, and it certainly is in your writing as well.
1: Well, by the time you were growing up, I had been immersed in liturgical renewal, reading Luther and uh, various other things we'll get to as we go along. Yes, but you're absolutely right. A major theme of my theology is what I call the theological subject. Who believes in Christ and how do we know what that believer is? How do we recognize a theological subject? And the fundamental answer is a theological subject is someone who has been baptized into Christ
0: Okay. Well, then let's continue from here then. Um, so I, what I wanted to do is make a kind of bridge between last time's episode on the first two thirds of Acts and what we're doing today. There is a very specific meaning I wanted to connect those. Um, so as I spend a lot of time working on the book of Acts, um, and especially in the context of dialogue with Pentecostals, um, one thing kept catching my attention again and again. And I was it took me a long time to fi- for it to finally float up to the surface. Surface, but and that is the theme of John the Baptist. Of course, you hear the word baptism right there in his uh, his famous title. Um, And the reason why it was hard to see is because, of course, for so long, John the Baptist has been, you know, the forerunner. And I mean, he's been he's been grandfathered into the Christian story so effectively that it's impossible to imagine that there might have ever been any significant tension or difference between him and Jesus. I mean, you get little hints of it here and there, Um, but on the whole it's just so self evident that john the baptist is on our side and i mean of course he baptized and of course we baptized that it finally it took me a long time to finally ask the question like what what is the relationship between what John the Baptist was doing and what Christians were doing? And I think this is actually a major submerged concern of Luke Acts. It must have become a, a much larger issue um, at the later time than he was writing than say, you know, when Paul or even the evangelist Mark were writing. And so, if you kind of track through the whole story of baptism through Luke and Acts, there is also this basically. Um, tacit polemic against John the Baptist's baptism. What's weird about it is that as far as we can tell, Nobody baptized other people until John the Baptist. the The tradition of Israel was filled with water rituals and ablutions of, of of all sorts, but nobody else did it to you. You would always submerge yourself. It would be a and as I would like to uh, call it, auto baptism. <laughs> you 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 self baptized. And John the Baptist, again, as far as we know, was the first person who baptized other people. It became a transitive action that was done from one person to another. And this is, of course, why um, Christians are often really puzzled by Jesus going to get baptized, because like you said, we associate it with getting saved from, you know, original sin and, and internal damnation. So why would Jesus of all people need it? But that's retrojecting Christian baptism ideas back onto John's baptism. And John's baptism is about identifying yourself with repentant Israel. That's the main thing it does. It's it's submitting to some sort of um, repentant Discipline, or something like that. So, what happens then is evidently early Christians were baptizing right away too. They were submerging other people, but what they were doing was somehow very importantly not what John the Baptist was doing. And what you see, especially in Acts, is a need to distinguish those. So um, readers of Acts sometimes notice that um, there's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's from the end of Matthew. It doesn't actually appear in Acts. In Acts, baptism is in Jesus' name, and in fact, there's a um, a sort of wing of uh, Pentecostalism that is anti-Trinitarian that baptize in Jesus' name. are very against baptism in the Trinitarian name, and they take Acts as the basis. But the contrast is not between Trinitarian baptism versus baptism in Jesus' name. The contrast is Christian baptism and John's baptism. And in Acts, Christian baptism is baptism in the name of Jesus. John's baptism isn't in any name at all. And so as I mentioned in our last episode, the final story in the Holy Spirit in gathering process of the first two thirds of Acts is bringing in John's disciples, actually, they're the last and latest, not the Gentiles, which is really striking. And I think that shows you narratively, what a big issue this was, and how important it was to end there and finally get all the people properly baptized. And then in in that story, especially in Acts 19, it's emphasized that when you get baptized in Jesus' name, there's still repentance involved. It's still identifying yourself with repentant Israel. But the big difference is that the Holy Spirit is given in connection with the act of baptism in Jesus' name. And John's baptism is not in any name and does not convey the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what wraps up the whole story here. So the takeaway for me, and this is where I wanted to, to get started talking, you know, more expansively and theologically about baptism, is that in the understanding of Luke Acts, and I would argue also the larger New Testament, but we're just going from Luke Acts here, The important thing to note about Christian baptism is that it is in a name, (laughs) it conveys the Holy Spirit or is so closely enmeshed with the Holy Spirit, might be before, might be after, but basically Christian baptism and the Holy Spirit are tightly linked to each other. And it is the beginning of the Christian life. And I think that's really important too. So for example, when Saul has his road to Damascus experience, um, and then he he ends up there in Damascus in the care of Ananias, he's been fasting for three days. But the first thing he does when he hears the, the, the word from Ananias is to go and get himself baptized. Baptized even before he eats any food, so there's something like, and you know, this is not a very well-educated Saul at this point, um, and is just barely um, um, compliant with what the Lord wants him to do. He's not been properly catechized, probably not very properly informed, and yet the minute he has met Jesus, the first thing he has to do is get baptized. So um, again, the the three things are in uh, the name of God and with the Holy Spirit. And finally, at the beginning, this is the entryway into the whole Christian life.
1: Yeah, a couple of comments uh, here. I do think it makes a difference whether we dip, dunk, or sprinkle, especially when we transition away from the legalistic question, is this valid such that the infant so baptized will not go to hell as a result of being baptized? If we just transcend that framework, that legalistic question, and ask, what is the water bath meant to do as a verbal word, as a symbolic action? What is the bath meant to do? And here we have a fundamental choice. We can say, well, it's like washing some dirt off. It's like taking a bath and getting clean. It's a cleansing ceremony. Or we can say it's something like a welcoming into the world ceremony in which uh, we are symbolically representing a new birth, the, uh, the physical birth from the mother's womb, the spiritual birth uh, from the washing with water. And I think ideas like this kind of vaguely crystallize around the mistranslated expression in John 3 about being born again, so that the fundamental idea of baptism is to be born again. But closer reading of John 3 shows you that the meaning of that Greek particle, ano, is actually the subject of a pun, a double meaning, is used by Jesus. Nicodemus takes the adverb ano to mean born again. And he asks, literally, can a man go back into his mother's womb? And then the second meaning of this Greek particle, ano, is, uh, is from above, to be born from above. And Jesus corrects Nicodemus's literalistic misunderstanding of being born again and says, no, in fact, you must be born from above by the Spirit through the water. And so the new birth uh, is to be understood as the work of the spirit who comes from above and is affected through the water, the ceremony with the water. Okay, at that point, we have to ask, what difference does dipping, dunking, or sprinkling make? Well, I think dipping or sprinkling very much uh, symbolize something as weaker, like washing up, getting clean from some dirt or perhaps welcoming someone into the world by a mimetic ceremony, imitating emergence from the womb. But it's actually, I think, immersion into the water, symbolizing death, and then emergence from the water, symbolizing resurrection, stands behind the Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans 6, know you not that as many of as you as have been baptized have been baptized into his death so that we might rise and walk in newness of life, anticipating our resurrection. So I think it, actually the symbolism of the water ceremony is important. Uh, as you mentioned about Zeke's baptism, your child, uh, that was a powerful enactment of dying and rising in Christ, symbolically speaking. And that's what the ceremony ought to be communicating, in my opinion.
0: Right. Well, I think the issue here then is we need to distinguish between the effectiveness of the church's practice in terms of communicating its gospel message, and then the other side of legalism—not the if you don't do this, your little baby is going to burn in hell side, but the unless you went all the way under, you aren't actually baptized. It didn't count. It wasn't valid. And you do also—I mean—that this tends to be more like on the the Baptist, evangelical, or Pentecostal side, which definitely don't see baptism as rescue from hell for it's not in any way a divine act that saves. Um, but that, that gives you this, uh, flip side of legalism. So I I would certainly, as you know, since, since, as you, as you did at my request, baptize my son in the river in terms of the teaching tool and the, the power of the, the theological symbol of something actually doing what it, what it says that it's doing, then yes, I'm, I'm for dunking, but I would be a little bit nervous about emphasizing it to the point that people would start to think, Oh, my sprinkling baptism didn't count. I mean, you and I were both sprinkled and I think we're both still completely and absolutely baptized.
1: Absolutely, of course. And it's getting out of that whole legalistic mentality entirely, whether to the left or to the right. The point is, what is the gospel trying to do through the ceremony of baptism? Answer, through the water ceremony, the Spirit is identifying this particular person with the cross and resurrection of Christ. That's what matters. That's what counts.
0: Yeah, and I think as we, we've said in, in previous episodes, it really matters to see theology um, as describing what is happening in real time, in real life, in real history. So baptism isn't just another symbolic instantiation of God's gene- generalized, generic will to save. It is God actually saving this particular person who lives in this body, this time, in this place.
1: Right. It's not representing something other than itself. What it represents is the very action of God taking place here and now.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. Luther distinguished between philosophical symbols and theological symbols in that way. Philosophical symbols represent something absent. Theological symbols are actually bringing and doing the thing right there.
1: Well said. And while we're on Luther, then let's bring to mind his basic mandate on baptism when he said, we baptize not on account of faith, but for the sake of faith. We baptize not on account of faith, but for the sake of faith. That is to say that we baptize in obedience to the Spirit when parents present a child for baptism. And in presenting the child for baptism, they commit the child to the Spirit's care and nurture of faith. So for the sake of that child's faith, we baptize in the confidence that through the water ceremony and the Spirit's work in and through it by our communal remembrance of that event, the child's faith will be nurtured and developed, created, nurtured, and developed.
0: And this would apply, I think, equally to people who are baptized older at their own request, that it's also for their faith. I mean, clearly in this case, there has been the opportunity for the actual. Intellectual and emotional development that can allow a person to actually grasp the meaning of the words and the scripture and the stories and so forth and make some sort of volitional decision. But when somebody comes to believe, you don't just say, "Okay, great, you believe. That's excellence." No, as again, as Luke Acts shows us so clearly, when you believe, you get baptized. <laughs> That's the first thing you do, and then and then it is done. You're in, and it stays there as a permanent witness to the fact. Of of God's having called you and given you faith, and um, considering how again as we've said many times, difficult the Christian life is, how easy it is for us on a on a conscious level to have all of our faith vanish with no advance warning. Um, Even again for those who are baptized older, the idea of baptism for faith for their faith too as something to always turn back to, I think, is equally applicable and powerful.
1: Yeah, I think there's another flip side of what you're just saying there, Sarah, because. There is, especially in the modern period, in which there were so many different schisms over the new birth and the forms of baptism, dipping dunking, or sprinkling, and so forth and so on, Uh, in the back of all of that development was the search for one psychological model that would represent the actual order of salvation and to which all conversions to the faith would have to conform. And I just think this is totally bogus. (laughs) Me too. People come to faith in about a gazillion different ways. As many different people come to faith, that many different ways psychologically people come to faith. And trying to shoehorn everybody into one prescriptive model is deeply destructive of the unity of the church. Uh, But because it creates all these factions around various ways of evangelizing, converting, uh, and baptizing. Uh, whereas Paul, Paul on literature says very emphatically, one Lord, one faith, how many baptisms? One baptism.
0: One baptism. Yeah. One
1: baptism. And it's the Spirit's baptism that unites an individual, brings an individual into the community of Christ.
0: Well, and so so speaking of modern factions and problems, so one thing I'd like to talk about now then is I was I was very struck when I was reading your beloved community, your systematic theology that you were, I would say, pretty generous to those who would delay baptism of infants to an older age. Um, it came out of your reading of Bart and especially his rather ferocious critique, I would say, of what's called indiscriminate infant baptism, which specifically pertains to a kind of Christendom setting but I, I have to admit I was I was surprised by your uh, generosity not because you're not a generous person but because my feelings have gone kind of in the opposite direction but I'll, I'll let you make the case for your side and your concerns and then I'll come back with mine.
1: Very good sure um, but let's let me just uh, add something to what you said. it was not only Bart's critique of infant baptism which is in church dogmatics 44. Uh, but it very late in his life, by the way. Perhaps, as some have suggested by the time he was writing it, he was al- already a little bit daft.
0: <laughs> Cranky old man phenomenon.
1: Yeah, maybe. He was actually much persuaded by his son, Marcus Bart, uh on New Testament grounds. Uh, but coupled with that, for me, was also my a deep study of patristic literature particularly the genre of catechetical orations, in which all the major church fathers exercised. And catechetical lectures were the practice in the ancient church that when adults were converted, they went through a rather rigorous two-year preparation for baptism, which intensified in the 40 days of Lent. And during the 40 days of Lent, the bishop would come And then he would reveal the mysteries of the faith in catechetical lectures. So what we know uh, as Luther's catechism or other forms of catechism have their ancient genesis in this practice, that when converts were preparing for baptism, which was held annually on the eve of Easter, the bishops would prepare them during the 40 days of Lent by revealing the mysteries of the faith to them, namely the Lord's Prayer, some version of the baptismal creed, the commandments, and so forth. And what the scholarship I studied along with that reading taught me was that in our Christianity, adult baptism may not be normal, but it is normative. And I think this is something that's troubled me profoundly uh, since the 1960s, when most Lutherans utterly abandoned catechism. This is a really deep problem in American Lutheranism.
0: Sorry, let me just ask a question: Do you mean catechism for people preparing for baptism, for confirmands, for ongoing adults who were baptized as children? I mean, because until recently, in most parts of Euro America, adult baptism for Lutherans has not been terribly common. I mean, of course, it happens, but it's not—it's not the dominant mode.
1: Okay, you, you're right. I skipped a logical jump. Adult baptism was the more normal practice up through the fifth century or so. When, adult, when infant baptism became common, the rite of baptism was, was actually severed because the earliest rites of baptism included both the washing in the water, the immersion in the water, and chrismation, anointing with oil as a symbol of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was a unitary sacrament.
0: It still is for the Orthodox.
1: Yes, for the Orthodox. And they also commune their infants after they're baptized. In any case, in the Western church, chrismation, anointing with oil as a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit, was separated from baptism, which then reinforced the idea that the main point of baptism is to save the babies from going to hell if they died prematurely. So later in life, when they're old enough to take communion, you have to have a confirmation in which the anointing with oil, the gift of the Spirit occurs so that they're eligible to partake of communion. In the Lutheran tradition, there was a huge renewal of catechesis early in the Reformation. Uh, We think of Sunday services as the once-a-week thing that you do as a Christian. In Luther's Wittenberg, There were catechetical sermons for the children and the adults who brought the children to the sermons Uh, several times a week. uh, The preachers preached on all the parts of the catechism all the time, reviving the practice of the ancient bishops in their catechetical orations. And so this practice, this catechetical method, is like Christian Torah. In fact, in Luther's large catechism, he invokes the precedent of Deuteronomy and says the catechism, teaching the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the sacraments, the catechism is how Christians do instruction in the faith, Torah. And this is not simply intellectual knowledge, this is forming hearts as well as minds. So I think what's happened in American Lutheranism has been devastating and with the cultural changes that came in the 1960s, the very idea that a theological subject needs to be, and here I'm going to use an unpopular word, but I mean it, a theological subject needs to be indoctrinated. The doctrine of the church needs to be put into the developing Christian mind. Who can give its heart to Jesus, but let its mind otherwise go to the devil. Anyway, okay, enough on that rant.
0: Well, but I, I just say, I think the problem is we've often talked about how grace has become such a vacuous word that if we could both ban it for 10 years before people had the right to use it again, we'd do so. But I think the problem is that when grace is understood purely as, as you don't deserve it, and so therefore it makes no demands of you in any way, like that's the only way it can be truly generous, loving, and unconditional, then grace has to be, we're going to ritualistically and legalistically give you this rite of baptism which changes your life, but we're not going to in any way let you know that it changes your life or mm-hmm. ask anything of you or tell you anything about it lest you feel burdened by this marvelous new gift of life. I think that's that's kind of what grace and baptism have been reduced to, this bizarre legalistic universality that at the same time has no content.
1: Well, I was going to get on to that in a few minutes, and I will. Remind me not to forget to come back to that, the cheap grace problem that you just brought up. But I want to come back to then why also Karl Barth altered my thinking about indiscriminate infant baptism. Because it's really, Sarah, an ecclesiological problem that comes out of the mass capitulation of german christians uh, to nazism in the 1930s and on that's what triggered barts attack on infant baptism the very near uh, experience of masses of baptized german lutherans unionists and calvinists marching under hitler's swastika what difference did baptism make in their lives he asked critically and if you look deeply at this, the ecclesiological fight that went on in Germany in the 1930s was between two very different models of what the church is. On the one side was the Volkskirche, the people's church. Of course, that had an acutely racialistic spin in Nazi Germany. But the fundamental idea of the Volkskirche is that the church is the institution that cares for the spiritual or religious needs of all the people, and therefore it must be responsive to and inclusive and open to all the people. And so the church then becomes an institution which conducts rites of passage, welcoming babies into the world, welcoming adolescents into adulthood, welcoming couples into the estate of marriage, and saying farewell to loved ones when they pass away. That's fundamentally the work of the people's church. And the people's church then has a mandate to be radically inclusive, to include everyone and everybody in that political community because it is a function of the political community in which it it resides it's the spiritual or religious domain of the political community
0: so it's really a subset it's like you said when we were talking about athanasius it's the arian model of emperor state, and which aligns with god the father and then obedient um, christ the son church underneath it
1: exactly and the spirit even more subordinated for people who get into religion and that kind of thing. The alternative model in the nineteen thirties was the Bichenende Kirche, the confessing church. And the confessing church said over against the People's Church in the opening salvo of the Barman Declaration: Jesus Christ is the one word of God which we are to hear, trust, and obey in life and in death that's the confession that constitutes the church. The church lives by its confession of the lordship of Jesus. And in Nazi Germany, that takes on an acute resonance. The sole lordship of Jesus. The Fuhrer is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. The church lives by the confession that Jesus who was crucified, not Hitler who crucifies, is the Lord. And I think this conflict between two different ecclesiologies is also in the background of Barth's critique of infant baptism as indiscriminate, sanctification of whatever the community uh, wants at a particular moment in time. Now I'll segue back to your comments a moment ago and be done. I see this happening uh, in much of American Protestantism this renewal of this Volkskirche, this people's church ecclesiology. And it's rationalized in the name of so-called radical hospitality, which would have no prerequisites or requirements for admission to the Lord's table. In fact, if you want to come to communion, who would dare to deny someone a little taste of grace? And so in the name of radical hospitality, the traditional requirement, that is, the meal of the baptized, is being shucked off and rejected. Uh, Not only do I think this is a big self-deception, this is marketing a grace so cheap that you cannot even give it away, (laughs) but I think it is in simple contradiction to what Paul actually teaches about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians. He warns against eating and drinking The Lord's Supper without discernment, without discernment of the body. And he warns that if you don't know what you're eating and drinking, it will be poison to you. If you eat and drink the body and blood of Christ, you implicate yourself in the sufferings of Christ. Do people know that when they're being marketed the Lord's Supper as a taste of grace? Do they know that they're taking upon themselves the cross of Christ? I think this is false advertising. And I think it's destructive, spiritually destructive. So yes, I think that the traditional order, baptism is admission to the community of Christ, the Lord's Supper is the meal of the community of Christ in that order, is deeply theologically necessitated.
0: Okay. So what I hear is a really strong, and uh, I would say I strongly agree with, a really strong argument for effective and powerful catechesis. And I hear a really strong argument for communion as the meal of the baptized. But I guess I have to say, like, why is infant baptism the problem here? (laughs) Like, why did Bart nail down infant baptism, indiscriminate or otherwise, as the problem instead of the total failure of the catechesis of those infant-baptized people. I guess I have a hard time connecting the one with its its terrible Nazi outcome.
1: Uh-huh, yeah. Well, I you know, I'm not going to defend radically Karl Barth's rethinking of, of baptism in Church Dogmatics 4.4. I don't finally agree with it. But I do express sympathy for the critique, for the reasons that I've given, and in, in the context in which the critique was made. And I do think it's a word that Lutherans kind of instinctively reject, just like so many Lutherans so stupidly refuse to read or understand Karl Barth's theology in good faith. There, I said it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, let me say one more thing. In my own theology, which I don't reject infant baptism, though I think it has to be done with discernment and, and care, I found of all the 16th century figures' debating infant and believer baptism, I actually found Menno Simmons to have the understanding of baptism closest to Luther's oh, that's in the interesting. specific sense that baptism consists in dying and rising with Christ. That's what baptism is, dying and rising with Christ and you know others uh zwingli in particular thought of baptism as a kind of a extending election uh through the generations to the children or calvin preferred to speak of a baptism as adoption into the family of god there's nothing wrong with those ideas as such but they don't get to the heart of what baptism is dying and rising with christ uh, because we die and rise with christ we are elect because we die and rise with Christ, we are adopted as children of God, and so forth. So Menno Simmons was very strong on this, that baptism really signifies dying and rising with Christ. The difference is, is that he dualized the sign and the thing signified, the water ceremony from the spiritual experience of the new birth, and said these are two different things. And when you've had the spiritual experience of dying and rising with Christ, then you outwardly attest it by having yourself baptized.
0: Yeah, and Meno Simmons, we should say that he's, his Mennonites are named for him, which are one of the Anabaptist groups, So who were the first to really wholeheartedly reject infant baptism altogether and insist that baptism follows an older um, self-chosen or like an articulated confession of belief. And then you were baptized afterwards, right? Okay, well, so here's, uh, let me counterpose to that my own um, different Christendom studies, <laughs> because the, the Volkskirche problem you were describing was one um, specific to, um, you know, Northern Europe in the 20th century. So my encounters have been more along the lines of the North American version of the Volkskirche, of course, not with anywhere near the same level of, of a political backup. But there there is a certain political aspect to American Protestant Christianity, Especially of the Baptist evangelical, uh, and to a certain extent, more recently, Pentecostal type. So, the reason why I ended up becoming less sympathetic, well, let me say, of course, I'm in favor of discriminate infant baptism, you know, wise pastoral teaching that is actually, um, you know, making sure that the child will be raised in the faith by believing parents who actually desire baptism, and not some analog like nice new party for the new baby kind of thing, all in favor of that. But I think there is a very strong argument that needs to be made in favor of the baptism of infants, theologically speaking. Um, So so here, here's a number of them in, in, in no particular order. So one of them, I think, is actually the basic question of the humanity of children. And since I have um, uh, my whole life has been in the post Roe v. Wade era, this is particularly acute to me that there is no right to life um, before birth. Um, there's a sort of lesser humanity attributed to the child growing in the womb. And um, certainly, um, not, I believe, in our society, but in many societies, infanticide has been an, an, a not uncommon solution to uh, uh, unwanted children. Plus, there's the fact that um, infants are martyred, you know, not the Famous biblical story is, of course, the children who are martyred under Herod's regime, but we, you know, have heard horrifying stories from um, in and around Syria of Christian infants being slaughtered because they're Christian. I mean, they're much too they're much too young to have perpetrated their own crimes at this point, you know, to be sinners by the by the judgment of those who killed them, and yet because of their affiliation with Christ, they have been martyred. So I think, um, for me, infant baptism is a very serious expression of the full and complete humanity of children, such that they, in fact, can be and are theological subjects, to use your language, from the get go. So the second thing is that. Um, I think, again, in terms of the symbolic um, um, impact of what the church does, for Luther, and for those of us who follow after him, the primary point to make about baptism is that it's God's gift to us. Um, now, it's a valuable gift, it should not be treated like a pearls before swine kind of way, but it is truly a gift. It is freely and generously given, um, even knowing that not all will value it as they should. And I think it's so important to always re- think of baptism as a gift, um, that if baptism becomes primarily understood as a choice, then the the divinely given quality of it can be diminished. Now I don't say it, it is always diminished. Um, I uh, Baptist theologian I greatly respect. Timothy George argues very much that the faith itself is given to the older person, and then baptism is given as a kind of confirmation or sealing of that faith. And he talks very much in in gift language, and I admire and respect that. But I think that at a very basic level, there's something about the infant who does not choose God, but is chosen by God through the instrumentation of the church and the parents and the godparents and so forth, that much more powerfully bespeaks to the fact that we did not choose to be sinners, and we did not choose to be saved, <laughs> that both of these things happened beyond our power. And I guess my own concern is in highly um, activistic American culture. And again, this may, this may be very different elsewhere. It's really important to have this powerful reminder of our passivity, our patiency, our all the things that we don't choose, including just to exist at all. And so for me, the symbolic power of baptizing infants is is really witnessing to us our whole lives long, you didn't choose God any more than you chose to live, but God has chosen you and God will continue to choose you. And even when you inevitably fail to choose God back, because that is part of of the life of the Christian, unfortunately, um, God doesn't stop choosing you because it was never conditioned on your choice in the first place.
1: Oh, that's great, Sarah. i um... Uh, And I'll just say yes and amen to these basic points to confirm the humanity of children. Ironically enough, let me make this observation. The concern about the possible damnation of children in traditional understanding or pre-modern understanding is also can be understood to uh, entail an affirmation of the humanity of the child. Let me explain how. That's a little bit hard to wrap our minds around. But as I say to my students, you know, if you're getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner and while you're all waiting for the uh, turkey to set and your pet dog jumps up on the table and starts munching on the turkey and you catch the dog, you don't say, you sinner, repent. You don't <laughs> say that to a dog. You say, get away from there. The dog's just doing what dogs do, right? Right. And, and there's no sense of culpability or guilt. Uh, I mean, we might say anthropomorphically, you naughty dog or something like that, right? But we don't say sinner repent uh, to a dog stealing the Thanksgiving turkey. On the other hand, if someone gets greedy and, you know, steals a portion of the food from the family in a very unsociable way, we would say, what a jerk, You're acting like a jerk, right? We would call them to account as a sinner. And even even
0: a two-year-old,
1: part of being a a good parent
0: would be disciplining them and saying, no, 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 that's not what we do here. That's wrong. Apologize.
1: That's right. And that there's a certain agency in owning up to your sin, acknowledging your guilt, repenting, asking for forgiveness there's a certain recognition of humanity, even in the traditional idea that baptism rescues children from damnation. So that's a yes and amen to your main point, uh, that we, we are human beings from the moment we are born, if not earlier.
0: Definitely earlier, Dad. Definitely earlier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Definitely earlier. On the, on the gift nature of baptism, I think it's helpful here to remember with every gift comes a task. Uh, And baptism is an inauguration, a beginning. It's a gift that begins the Christian life, which is then a lifelong task. So we have Luther's paradox that we're free in faith, but servants in love. And so that if we've been baptized into Christ, we get to live in Christ and so forth. So a task comes along with the baptism, the task of lifelong turning to the Lord. Likewise, with the notion of divine calling, Uh, that goes along with the gift. Uh, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, you did not choose me, I chose you. And that is why Jesus is the Lord, and we are not. He alone is the Lord because he's the one who calls us through his Spirit. So I think all that's really great, Sarah, and um, I think those are all reasons why we are entitled to baptize infants. But now let me segue to the pastoral practice issue.
0: Okay, good, because I have some on this issue, too.
1: And I remember when I was in my early years in New York City as a graduate student when I'd recently been ordained, and I was just so excited to do pastor stuff. And people would call me on the phone and say, could you marry us? Could you perform a wedding service for us in Central Park or something like that? And I was, yay, I get to do a wedding. And I, you know, I went and did weddings like this. And then I would find out a six months or a year later that they'd broken up already. And I began to reflect on my indiscriminate practice of performing marriages without any counseling or preparation or catechesis. I'd given no time into explaining what Christian marriage is. So I reformed my practice there. I remember in my early days as a pastor in Delhi, New York, I would get phone calls as crudely put as this. Hey, Reverend, can you do our kid for us? (laughs) And by that time, I had learned to say, well, I'd be very interested to explore that possibility, but I want you to know that I require eight sessions of, of counseling before we commit to baptizing your child. Now, that can sound like, wow, what a turnoff, but actually it was. It turned off some people, but it brought a lot of other people into the church, those eight sessions of pastoral counseling. So I think that when we talk about indiscriminate infant baptism, uh, I think of a pastor I knew who basically turned his church, ran the congregation into the ground, neglected his pastoral duties to his flock, and turned the church into his personal wedding chapel, collecting fat honorariums for doing weddings. I just think that's extremely abusive practice. So when we talk about infant baptism, I think it's urgent and imperative that we discriminate by actually re-involving catechesis into the whole preparation process.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's true. And I mean, there is a money issue here that, um, you know, pastors in the old country would often get generous gifts, ma- monetary or food gifts for baptism. So of course, that creates a perverse incentive to baptize all comers. Um, also, I believe uh, I could be wrong about this, but I believe I was told that in the Church of England, pastors, priests are not permitted to refuse baptism to anyone for any reason, because it is a, you know, quote unquote, state church. Church kind of situation. The policy is everyone gets baptized, and I, I have to say, I was really appalled by that. I mean, I, I don't know. We don't, we don't really have very good conversations about when you do and when you don't, but that there would be a law saying that you had to, that you could not ever have the pastoral scruple to say, "I just don't think this is a good idea" or "the right time" or something like that. Um, I should own up here. Um, when I was my first go at being a pastor in Trenton, New Jersey, about uh, 10 years ago or so um it was a very painful experience i won't go into the whole extent of its painfulness but right before i was leaving um a uh younger relative of an active member in the church had a baby and asked you know or i would say rather assumed that the pastor me would baptize it and so i did as you described they said okay great here's what's involved there's a couple of sessions to meet and to talk about it and you know i'd like your stepchildren to be there and the sponsors and so forth and um in response, I got a, a long call left on the answering machine, obviously timed not to catch me in person, describing in tedious detail how there were not going to be any sessions, there was not going to be any learning, the godparents weren't going to be there, the stepchildren weren't going to be there, it was going to be on a Saturday, not in a worship service, there wasn't going to be communion because he didn't want to make it awkward for people who wouldn't take it, on and on and on. And I just like realized this This was part of the whole pain of the experience that I was not a pastor, I was a hired religious hand to dispense the the requisite ceremonies of the church.
1: Volkskirche, Volkskirche, Volkskirche.
0: It really was. But what, what became really clear to me, and this is probably going to sound super judgmental to some people, but let me just put it out there. It was very clear that what this mother did not want for her child was Christian baptism. She certainly wanted something for her child, but the thing she wanted was not baptism. Now, maybe if she had agreed to catechesis, she would have come around and said, you know, baptism sounds great. Actually, this is better than I ever knew. I would have loved to have that opportunity, but she was not interested in finding out. She was not interested in finding out more about what baptism was. And I just felt like I couldn't in conscience do it. So I have to admit, I was a bit cowardly. I was about to leave anyway. So I basically said to her, you know, you should probably find a pastor to do this, who will continue to have a relationship with your child into the future rather than me. I didn't say plainly, I'm not going to do this because I can tell you don't actually want baptism for your kid. I don't know if that would have been better, but, um, um, but anyway, so despite my uh, strong endorsement of infant baptism and my suspicion of those who want to delay it, I myself have avoided performing what I would have taken to be an indiscriminate infant baptism. But let me flip here. This is another pastoral concern. And I think this one is one that in our circles, Dad, you and I are unlikely to see, but I think is an absolute pandemic. And that is rebaptism. So. Many years ago, Luther wrote a treatise called Rebaptism. Baptism. Um, he didn't actually see it done at the time, but a couple of, I think actually still Rome loyal priests wrote to him and said, um, there seem to be some people here who are baptizing again, people who were baptized as infants, and what should we do? So Luther basically just kind of thought through the whole logic of it. And he basically said, the second you cease to see baptism as God's gift to someone for their faith, and start seeing it as something you do and act as an expression of your faith. You're not only going to rebaptize once, you're going to rebaptize multiple times because you are never going to be sure enough that your confession was adequate and sufficient to really count as as the real thing and to really be baptized. Now, when I first read that, I thought like that was kind of kooky. you know, like, okay, logically, Luther, maybe, but well, it turns out he was, he just, prophesied it perfectly. Um, A number of years ago, I gave a talk at a Pentecostal seminary, and the um, people who invited me were great. They said, we would love for you to make the best argument you can for a Lutheran understanding of baptism and explain to us why you do it to infants. And so at this point, I knew just enough about this um, believer baptism emphasizing um, side of the Christian world that I started my talk by saying, all right, I'd like everyone who has been baptized at least once to raise raise their hand. And everybody raised their hand, which maybe was a bit surprising actually, but um, because they wouldn't necessarily all be, but it was a seminary. So pretty good chance. Then I said, I'd like everyone who's been baptized twice to raise your hand. And dad, half the room raised their hand. Then I said, all right, anyone who's been baptized three times, raise your hand. Got maybe a dozen hands in the air. Then I said, If you've been baptized four times, raise your hand. And at that point, one last person raised their hand. Okay, this is staggering. And furthermore, it's horrifying because baptism is not in any way the beginning, right? It's not in in any way a gift. It is this repeated frantic act to try to say my confession is really true this time. Not only that, it represents deep ecumenical distrust because what I found out is there are throughout the world, many denominations and congregations on the believer baptizer side, who although they don't claim baptism as a sacrament or as saving or anything, nevertheless, they won't accept another church's baptism, even though all it is, you know, that's my Lutheran air quotes there, all it is, is a confession. Well, your confession in your Baptist church didn't count for us. And so now in this Pentecostal church, you have to. Or now in this non denominational church, you have to. I remember talking to Mennonites in a dialogue setting who have, uh, I would say, probably the best thought out um, theology and practice of believers' baptism, and yet they were reporting their dismay that their young people would go to college, join some kind of evangelical fellowship, but then get baptized again, like it was happening to them too. And so the number of rebaptisms that takes place, I think, must just be phenomenal and horrifying. But I think there is a really a profound link between the refusal of infant baptism with its linkage very much to the gift nature of baptism and this phenomenon of re-baptism, which is the believer's frantic efforts to obey sufficiently and confess sufficiently in order for the baptism to really take. And then you add on to that the fact that there's so much disagreement between churches about what what actual confession or belief ought to be so that they distrust each other. For me, that became so much more of a concern than indiscriminate infant baptism anymore, especially, I suppose, being a little bit younger than you. (laughs) Um, There's less interest in baptism as a just an automatic right than there used to be, probably even when you were growing up, Th- this is what concerns me a whole lot more. So if I could like achieve one ecumenical goal, it would not be um, communion among all peoples. that's that's way far off. My goal, I think even the more urgent one is to stop the rebaptisms. Within your denomination, between your denominations, I don't care what age you did it at, just once. That's it. There is nothing in the New Testament that gives you any reason to believe that there can be more than one baptism. The only story that comes close again is Acts 19, where it's the disciples of John who get baptism, get baptized, but they're not baptized again as Christians. They're baptized for the first time as Christians. What they had before was John's baptism without the Holy Spirit, without the divine name. So I think there just cannot ever be any excuse for rebaptizing, and I would like that to become more of a central focus in ecumenical conversations about baptism.
1: Well, you cited the Ephesians text earlier, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's kind of marching orders for your passionate little uh, speech there. That's great. Or a tirade. A tirade, I like it very much, and uh, it reminds me just of a couple more pastoral incidents, just the anecdotes that I can tell. I visited a man one time in upstate New York. This was an area of the state called the Burned Over District. It's where Joseph Smith and Mormonism originated, this part of upstate New York. And it had 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 so many revivals in it that the word went around that it's all burned up. There's no fuel left. It's all gone. And I visited a man uh, who was on the books of the church and uh, he had, I'd never seen him in church, and I asked him what was going on. And he looked up to me and he said, Pastor, I've been born again so many times, and it never did take. I'm hopeless.
0: <laughs> it never did take. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: right. I think part of one of the things I would add to what you're saying is that for many people, they're searching for an experience. They're searching for a sense of inner peace and tranquility. And Closeness to God. They want to feel that, and that's what they're looking for when they get themselves baptized or rebaptized. And again, this is a human religious need. I have nothing against feeling close to God. I think it's a wonderful feeling, you know, but it's not the gospel. It's the gospel that in our despair and trouble and pain and agony, the God of mercy and grace draws near to us, whether we feel it or not, and sticks with it, whether we sense it or not. And that's what faith is. Faith is not believing your own feelings. Faith is believing the gospel word of God. I think that all connects with uh, and reinforces what you were just saying.
0: Yeah, so let me tell another story along these lines, which I found quite touching. So, again, a few years ago, I was at Beeson Divinity School, which is headed up by the aforementioned excellent Timothy George. And um, so, th- this topic came up. I talked about baptism. And so, at a, a meal later with the students, um, one of the Baptist students told me how he, of course, had been baptized and probably in his late teens or something upon confession of faith and felt it very passionately and ardently at the time. And then um, later, you know, the faith went away, and it got weakened. And then he was really distressed. And he, you know, turned to his pastors, and they said, you know, what should I do, you know, and, and they said, now, this is really interesting. They said, Well, try to remember how you felt when you first got baptized, oh and what led you there and try to recapture that feeling. And he was like, No, <laughs> it, that doesn't work. And you know and the, and then faith came back again for a while and he ended up getting rebaptized. Because he didn't think it counted the first time. But then again, he had another crisis of faith, you know, and again, all they could do is say, you know, go back, recapture that feeling. And so, amazingly enough, he said that it was reading Luther on rebaptism that got him out of this cycle because from it he learned that baptism is a gift. Now, he said to me very plainly, I still think it's better to baptize people who are older, who have, you know, learned something and who can make a confession. Um, I think that is better practice. But I think we have to tell. Those people, and we have to teach those people that being brought to that point of wanting baptism is itself a grace of God, and that when you are baptized, it's God's permanent claim on you, even if you were the one who physically walked yourself up there and took your own vows and so forth. And so, if if faith vanishes after that for a time, it doesn't mean you need to get rebaptized when faith comes back again. It means that it's the promise that God gave you in baptism. So I, I was just really deeply moved that uh, you know someone who is and, and remains a Baptist with a, a preference for the, the baptism upon confession, um, could nevertheless be so helped by this emphasis on baptism as a gift.
1: You know, it's just, it's just, it's such a simple but decisive theological notion that faith is not introspection. Faith is, so to speak, extrospection, not looking into yourself, but looking outside of yourself into the, uh, the gospel of Christ and Christ who comes to you by his spirit through the gospel. That's what you look at, God and his promises in Christ, not at yourself. If you look at yourself, you're going to fall into an abyss. And it's better just to get out of that. Luther says our faith is certain because it takes us outside of ourselves. Right, right,
0: right. Yeah, So I I think one maybe final distinction is helpful for us thinking through church practice, which is that To those who are baptized, baptism is entirely gospel and gift. It is given to them. They are invited to simply accept and receive what's given to them. But to the apostolic ministry of the church, baptism is commanded. The command is not be baptized. The command is go out and baptize. And so those who have been entrusted with the apostolic ministry, their job is to see to it that people get baptism and let's say get real baptism, which means the complete package with the water and the divine name and the um, catechesis before or after <laughs> the faith before or after for people whether they're very very tiny still or people whether they're very very old or somewhere in between it's the apostolic ministry's job to go out there and and make sure that this this gift is freely is freely offered to people to receive that that's where the command side lies and as you said uh, said early on in the whole range of ways that people come to God again whether it's by their parents' action when when they're tiny babies as it was for you and me or whether it's people who live in a region that have never heard the gospel or hearing it for the first time and respond with truly an adult uh, apprehension and welcome and decision all of those are great the whole point is get baptized because it's a great gift and god wants to give it to you
1: amen good place to finish
0: i'd say so all right and so next time we'll be talking about spirits holy and otherwise
1: all right until then i'll be working on my exorcisms okay